Attorneys for millionaire real estate heir Robert Durst have made a startling concession as his trial date nears on charges he murdered his best friend. Prosecutors say Durst flew to Los Angeles in 2000 to kill Susan Berman because she was threatening to turn Durst in for killing his wife Kathy. Kathy went missing in 1982 and her body has never been found. Durst has long been suspected in Kathy's death, but has never been charged. He was acquitted of murdering his Texas roommate Morris Black in 2001 but he was convicted of chopping up that body and throwing it into Galveston Bay. Durst is scheduled to go to trial next month for Susan Berman's death. Someone mailed this note to the Beverly Hills Police Department in the days after Susan Berman's murder. It lists her address and says the word cadaver. The name Beverly is also misspelled. The victim's stepson provided a copy of another letter Durst mailed to Susan with Beverly also misspelled the same way. Durst previously denied writing the note, but in a recent court filing, his attorneys admit Durst is the author of the big note in question. Prosecutor John Lewin flew to New Orleans to interview Durst immediately following his arrest in 2013, 2015 rather. Here's what Durst had to say when asked about that note. As you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter, they killed Susan. Agree? You see, I don't know that. I mean... Maybe there were two people who killed Susan. Okay. It doesn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One, pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh okay. No, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. This is the handwriting. One of these is the one you wrote uh, to Susan before. And one of them is the cadaver note. Can you tell me which one of these you didn't write? I couldn't begin to. Yeah, because they look identical. Agreed? If not identical, extremely similar. Just went on to say, well, maybe the letter N is different. Could someone have possibly forged his writing? Either you wrote both of them. That's one, you agree, that's a possibility and that's a fair, and that's a, when you look at it, that's a fair thing for somebody to think, right? That's reasonable. Yes. Re reasonable, right? Reasonable. Okay, okay. So, uh, so the other possibility, which could be that one of these, somebody was trying to forge and copy your writing. Would you agree? That, that could be a possibility. That's a possibility. Okay. Here's the problem. When you look at the writing, what the experts can say is when you trace it, that's what it's called. You're really drawing. You're not writing. You can tell when somebody traces it. Both of these are what we call naturally executed. So you, you wrote both of them. So I know, Bob, that you wrote both of these. You did not drive down there and find Susan's body, even though you were not the killer. I don't agree to anything like okay. that. I mean, okay. that's evidentiary. Okay, so you don't want to answer that. No, 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 what I'm telling you is, is I'm, I'm just saying, that did not happen. You agree, you did not just find Susan's body and somebody else killed her. I did not find Susan's body. 
At one point in that interview, prosecutors say Durst basically confessed in exchange for a plea deal. Durst's attorneys, however, say the opposite, and they stand firm that their client is innocent. Listen for yourself. I'm looking, I'm 72. Right. And almost, almost, um, almost 72. Not till April 12th, I think. April 12th, excellent memory. Uh, going forward, I told my life expectancy is about five years. So there's not much that I could agree with with anybody that somebody could offer me unless they could offer me more life, right? Something like that. There, there's just not much I, I can say, listen, um, look at this. I, I just have no idea how we could reach an agreement on something. Durst's defense actually tried to get evidence of Durst's handwriting excluded from the upcoming trial. They argued at one point that the state could not prove who wrote the so-called cadaver note. In the course of our defense, there will be multiple uh, representations about the way the uh, investigation was conducted, especially in light of the fact that there has been a concession already that there's absolutely no forensic evidence having been retrieved from the scene, uh, even though there's multiple possibilities of uh, other people that we will uh, uh, present at the time of trial. Not necessary for us to preview our defense, but with that said, Your Honor, um, I don't think anybody should be allowed to testify that Mr. Durst is the author of the cadaver note. I think the court has observed um, what is allowed and what is not allowed. They can give, uh, Mr. Cunningham can give his opinion as to why certain things, but the ultimate decision is up to the jury to decide, and the court's going to so instruct. The defense was expected to call an expert who would say handwriting testimony is just flat out not reliable. The prosecutor says that's confusing, but nonetheless, be ready for cross-examination. Is it proper for an expert to, in essence, say, listen, handwriting's garbage. I don't care what the Cal Supreme Court says about admissibility, so then what do I do? Do I call, uh, you know, the Cal Supreme Court here to testify? Do I have the court take judicial notice and read to the jury that, in fact, the Cal Supreme Court has specifically stated that handwriting is admissible in California? I don't think I exclude it simply because the, uh, the evidence, the contrary evidence, is admissible. Oh, Your Honor, uh, yeah. my, uh, I want to testify. I'll gut him like a fish. Uh, the the problem really? is going to be. I can't. Sports the, the, the the problem is going to be. Fish, I just want to give real clear, real clear warning and information to counsel that if you're calling somebody who's going to attack the whole field, who's not even a, a handwriting expert themselves, then this is the cross you're going to get. Okay, let's bring our guests in to discuss these developments. Attorney Adam Conta, Gigi Gonzalez, and Brian Buckmeyer join us now. So, Brian, let's recap here. You've got the defendant sitting in that interrogation room saying, oh, I agree whoever wrote this was a party to the killing. Then you've got the defense saying, well, the state can't prove who wrote the note. Now you've got the defense saying it is a strategic decision to stipulate, agree, that the defendant wrote the so-called cadaver note and the so-called dig note. Why in the world are they doing this at this point? 
I mean, I, I'm hoping, I really am, that there's some sort of intelligent reason for doing this. But as far as I can see, this is like running through traffic in the middle of rush hour. Sure, you might get to the other side, but you're definitely gonna get a couple bumps and bruises along the way. You don't stipulate to this. You make them make the arguments and you combat them and you see where everything lays. Okay, Gigi Gonzalez, there's this big dispute over the experts. Is it possible the defense is worried about a battle of the experts here and that the handwriting on the notes just looks too much like the defendants to try to make a scene out of an expert saying that the handwriting is similar and then another expert saying that the first expert doesn't know what he's talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the defense has got a lot to fear in this situation. And in this case, you've got your client saying on camera that, only the you know, the true murderer is the person who wrote this letter, and now you've got the defendant admitting that he wrote this letter. It's absolutely atrocious. The last thing you want is to get tangled up in expert witnesses, expert witness testimony that's going to determine that the defendant, yes, indeed, wrote that letter. Okay, Adam Conta, let's try to figure out the strategy here. Why would the defense stipulate that the defendant wrote this note and then argue that this is preserved for appeal? Wouldn't the appeal court just look and say, hey, look, you picked your poison, you agreed he wrote this, and now you have to live with it? No, not necessarily. Um, I think that a lot of what we're talking about here was done behind the scenes. These were all motion and lemonades. I'm sure the defense argued very, very strenuously to keep this out. That was obviously overturned. So then they're stuck with, do we go expert to expert and try to combat this? Or do we make the strategic decision to, over our objection, let it in uh, and hope to make a molehill out of a mountain, so to speak? Brian Buckmeyer, another question for you. Attorneys can, of course, file appeals to higher courts in the middle of a trial. Is it possible we could see that here in interlocutory appeal? I would have thought so, but when you got to the whole point of stipulating, meaning that both sides are saying we both agree to allow this to go forward, I think that boat has kind of sailed already, and they already said, you know, we're just going to continue forward, kind of like what Adam is saying, and just maybe argue it out or hash it out in another uh, arena. Interesting theory here. Let's, uh, let's also ask this question from a big picture standpoint here. Gigi, there's evidence that Durst and Berman were great friends here. Is the defense just simply hoping that the evidence that the defendant and the victim were really close. Is the defense hoping that that's just going to win the day here? I think so. Yeah, I think that's really like their last straw here is to, you know, hope that the emotional connection between the victim and the defendant is enough to help the jury conclude that his motives for writing the letter was not because he was the person that killed her. It's because he was her friend and he wanted her body found so that she could be given a proper funeral service or what have you. So, you know, that would be the defense's strongest leg to stand on on that point. You know, and that's one of the theories here is that that note indicates that maybe the defendant wrote it, knew something had happened, and that he had a religious reason for wanting to make sure that she was buried properly. Well, this will continue to be argued on and on. We'll keep track of it. The man known as the affluenza teen, meanwhile, is back in jail more than a year after he was released from prison. Ethan Couch got the nickname after he used his affluent upbringing as a defense to claims he killed four people in a 2013 drunk driving crash. Couch and his mother were arrested after fleeing to Mexico and then later claimed Ethan lacked a sense of personal responsibility because of his dysfunctional, wealthy parents. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison but was released in April 2018. Couch allegedly violated his probation after testing positive for a key component of marijuana. 
And still ahead here on The Debrief, find out what movie producer Harvey Weinstein is said to have been doing in the days leading up to his criminal trial on sex crimes charges. Plus, a judge has ruled what evidence will and what evidence will not be admitted to the trial of a man accused of killing Iowa College student Molly Tibbetts. We break down the decision for you right after this break. Welcome back, everyone. We here at Law & Crime are tracking the upcoming trial of former movie producer Harvey Weinstein, which is set to begin on Monday. Weinstein is accused of sexual misconduct with more than 80 women, but his criminal trial involves accusations from only a fraction of those accusers. Weinstein, meanwhile, was spotted eating ice cream sundaes in New Jersey, according to a report on TMZ. They cite a Weinstein source as saying the former movie producer was taking a holiday break from his troubles. An Iowa judge has ruled that most of the key evidence against a man charged with murdering an Iowa college student will be admissible at trial. Christian Bahena Rivera is accused of killing Molly Tibbetts in August 2018. We brought you the two-day suppression hearing a few months ago here on the Law & Crime Network. The defense asked the judge to throw out statements the defendant made after a bad Miranda warning and to throw out evidence which came after the defendant had been awake for 26 hours, much of it under interrogation. The key evidence, of course, was the victim's body. The defendant led authorities right straight to it. The judge threw out certain statements between Christian Rivera's first or bad Miranda warning and his second good Miranda warning, but the defendant repeated pretty much everything, so there's virtually no harm to the prosecution. The judge is allowing in statements which led authorities to the victim's body and physical evidence from the defendant's car, including the victim's DNA. The judge rejected claims that the defendant's admissions resulted from sleep deprivation from that long interrogation. Here's how the prosecution questioned the officer who botched the first Miranda warning. Did you make an effort to read Miranda warnings to Mr. Rivera shortly after he was taken into custody? Yes. Did you do those from memory? Yes. All right. Uh, you did not read them from a card? No. All right. And... Um, you failed to read him a Miranda warning, is that right? Yes. You're aware of that now? Yes, I am. All right, did you fail to read him the right that anything can be used against him in court? Yes. Okay. Um, did you do that on purpose? No. Uh, was that a mistake? That was a mistake that I did. Okay. Was there any type of um, plan or effort by law enforcement to read him part of his Miranda warning in order to keep Mr. Rivera talking? No. The defense forced that officer to read what she actually said to the defendant and to note how it deviated from an actual Miranda card. As we play this testimony, you will hear in the background the translator who is repeating the proceeding back to the defendant in Spanish. You have the right to remain silenced. You said you have the right to remain silenced. Is that correct? Silence, yes. Instead of silent, it's silence. Is that right? That's the way it was translated, yes. Right. And then the next statement that you say, ma'am. If you don't want to speak to me, you don't have to. You have the right to have an attorney present. If you can't pay one, we will assign to you without a charge. This is the way that I'm reading it and the transcript. Now, ma'am, were you aware that another law enforcement officer told my client that he didn't need a lawyer? I was not aware of that. All right, the next statement that you say, ma'am. You also have the right to 
want to talk to me, anything that you say could be used against you. Do you understand? And I'm going to back up. What you actually say is you say you ha also have the right to, and it says comma, uh, dot, 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 want to talk to me. Anything you say can be used against you. Is that right? Yes. You agree with me that what you say there is certainly not verbatim for what is on Defendant's Exhibit CC. Yes, it's not the same. Okay, all of this is police testimony aimed at convincing the judge what evidence was or was not gathered in violation of the Constitution. Here, another officer describes how the defendant led authorities to the victim's body. Where we were stopped on our left, um, there was standing corn, but there was a long, empty, I wouldn't even call it a field drive, it was just a long lane into, of like, um, looked like it had been in like an old driveway or something, just right in the middle of the, of the cornfield. Um, he told us um, that's where we would find her. Uh, Mr. Rivera told us that um, we would find her be on the east side of that kind of opening that I described. Um, I don't remember if he gave us like a distance, um, gave us a general area to start looking. Um, so he was left in the car um, while myself, um, um, Special Agent Valletta, Special Agent Potratz, and uh, Sheriff Kriegel and I went into the cornfield. Were you able to locate the body after the initial instructions? No. Were you given additional instructions? Yeah, we had uh, Mr. Rivera um, exit my car and walked him back to where we had gone into the cornfield. Um, so we went, we went back in, and I don't remember how we got, um, he, I don't know how he was instructing whoever he was standing with, but um, somehow we, we knew that we needed to kind of change our position a little bit. And once we, once we did, after that second set of instructions from him, she was found within a few minutes. The prosecution argued that even if everything was legally defective with the, with the defendant's interrogation, which it wasn't, the victim's body should still come into evidence because of the legal doctrine of inevitable discovery. In other words, it would have been found anyway. I know the farmers were pretty anxious. Um, nobody wanted to be the one to find her. And I had heard, I remember it was the sheriff or chief deputy had told me once that the uh, uh, farmers were just worried that they would have to go really slow during harvest for fear of coming across Molly. Lots of corn in the field. Everywhere. Um, and other crops like soybeans, would that be true? Yes. All right. Um, at some point, would the corn be harvested? It would. Um, I grew up here. I was never a farmer, but I always have a good idea of, of um, I had a lot of relatives that were farming, so I knew that the uh, fields would be harvested usually Octo late October, okay. around that time. And when the corn is harvested, it's, it's cut correct? Yes. Uh, which would expose the ground yes. uh, more so, is that right? That's correct. If Molly Tibbetts would not have been found at that point, would law enforcement have continued to search? It, we were, uh, as a, if I remember correctly, we were planning expanding our search even that day. Okay, let's bring the panel back into the discussion. Adam, Gigi, and Brian are back here. So Brian, 
we've got so many exceptions to the Miranda doctrine at this point that this looks like one of those law school exams that hits almost every possible exception out there. You've got inevitable discovery. You're talking about attenuation doctrine. So, so look, I mean, the judge is saying pretty much everything comes in except for that gap between the bad Miranda warning and the good one. And then he basically repeated everything later anyway. So does it really matter? Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't. It, it doesn't matter for this particular section because, or this particular case, sorry, because you have a, a poorly given Miranda, you have a properly given one, uh, you fall into the exception of Miranda for fruit of poisonous tree, where the attenuation or inevitable discovery comes in, so you get to actually get all that information and otherwise. But it's important for the larger construct of the Constitution and ensure that the rules are followed and all the checks are, are checked off. Gigi Gonzalez, what do you make of this so-called honest mistake? The judge believed that this bad Miranda warning was basically an honest mistake legally. Do you agree with that, listening to that officer on the stand? You know, I don't think I do. This is, you know, these are the Miranda rights. These are a cornerstone of our, our justice system. And here you are botching them during an interrogate or, excuse me, a, you know, a detention that's lasted several hours with a defendant or an accused person who, you know, doesn't have the education or the language understanding to really understand what's going on here. You know, I don't think this is an honest mistake. I think they should have taken more care to procure an officer or a translator that could effectively translate and, you know, dictate to this defendant what exactly is happening here. And that's the next question I was going to ask you, Gigi, and I wanted you to speak on this. Was too much lost in the translation there between English and Spanish? You know, yes, absolutely. You know, the Miranda rights, they're, they're very clear. And in this case, while there's some things, there's some words that are hard to translate from English to Spanish and Spanish to English, you know, the general gist of it, the exact translation shouldn't have been lost here. So, you know, if they would have had a translator who is proficient in the Spanish language, this would not have happened. Well, there was some proficiency there. The question is just how effective it was. And we're also talking about rural Iowa here, rather, where you're not going to find presumably a large number of people proficient in Spanish. Very quickly here, Adam Conta, we had promises of leniency in there, um, ultimately not legal effect given to those. That police can basically do that, and they did it here. Yeah, they did it here. And, you know, I actually thought they straddled the line pretty well here uh, because they didn't say you're going to get, uh, I guarantee you, a, a lighter sentence if you, if you admit to it. Yeah, so that really didn't sway the judge. That's all the time we have for today here on The Debrief, though. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Thank you.